He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace and truth that we see in Jesus Christ our Savior. We thank you that he is the light of the world, the light to all men. We thank you for his witness, his witness of perfection to mankind, that they might see, um, as he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. We thank you for that witness. We thank you for his death, his burial, his resurrection. We thank you for the salvation that we have through his shed blood. Lord, I pray that as Pastor Dan brings the word to us, Lord, that you would help us to see Christ anew and fresh. That we would um, just have a, a real encouragement and strength in our, heart, in our hearts of who Christ is and, and what he has done for us. We thank you for that gospel message. We pray that you help the word to um, burn into our souls, Lord, that we would live in a way that others would see Christ in us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be
to back up, if you remember a little bit, John, if you heard last week, some of this will be repetitive. If not, it will be new for you. But if you remember John, his Christmas story is a little different than the Christmas stories we read in the other Gospels. When we remember Mark, he just skips all together and he's running full speed um, into the life of Christ right away. You have Matthew, and he approaches it mainly through genealogy. And he takes his opening remarks, Matthew, and spends quite a time tracing from Abraham to David, then to Jesus Christ, connecting Jesus Christ as really the Lord of the covenants. That one made with Abraham, that one made with David, continuing his way through. Probably the most well-known of the gospel stories would be in Luke. Probably the most familiar, Luke chapter 2. And there you have painted for you kind of that beautiful Christmas scene. You have the nativity, if you will, and Mary and Joseph and uh, the donkey bringing Mary as she's bringing a child into Bethlehem. You have the stable and the manger, and you have all the story of life and the shepherd and all, everything that we that have talked about. You have kind of your Christmas story there. John decides to do it a little differently. Instead of starting with the earthly things and working our way up towards more heavenly, towards more theological and, and divine truths, instead of starting kind of with the earthly, perhaps mundane things, which are beautiful, which are, are great and are part of uh, the Christmas story and worthy to be told, obviously. But John takes it a different way. He starts at the very pinnacle, the very peak, the very mountaintop of theology. He starts with the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Boom, there you have it. And then that sheds a light now on everything else that he's going to write. And so we look at why does maybe John do this? And, and I just came up with three possible reasons. I think, one, John, when he wrote, he's older than Matthew and Mark when he's writing. Matthew and Mark, Luke were written. And John was probably written 30 plus years later than those other Gospels. He would have been familiar with the Gospel account. So he's writing a little bit uh, differently, at a different stage in life. One of them. You remember Jesus on the cross as he kind of commissions John to care for his mother. And then tradition, history would have it that the mother of Jesus, Mary, would move to Ephesus with John. And John would kind of care for her for the rest of her life. And that's where she would die. And so think of the impact that that would have, living and caring for the mother of Jesus. And then thirdly, just an observation. As you read John, he just seems to have an insight that God has given him, has inspired him as he writes, that seems to be able to see behind the veil. We talked about so much of our theology of, of election and our, the covenants between God and Christ and, and the inter-Trinitarian conversation, all that grows out of John's theology. Then you see, of course, in Revelation, again, kind of that parting the curtains and getting to see back behind and more of John writing. Um, he, he just seems to have the Lord graciously has given him and allowed him to write for our sake inspired words that give us a glimpse into the deeper things of the Lord at times. And so we're going to get that again here in John 1 verse 14. Alright, this will be a little review. See if you can remember. We made four observations 
from John 1 1. We have four Christmas Advent meditations, observations. Anyone remember any of them? Maybe you weren't here, you just guess at them. Eternally existing. Yeah, Jesus was eternally existed. In the beginning was the Word. And we established that Jesus didn't start on Christmas. Jesus didn't start at creation. Before creation, Jesus was. Before anything that was created, Jesus was. It talks about all things being created through him. Meaning he is totally set apart from creation. He is eternal. He has eternally existed. Alright, so Jesus doesn't start at Christmas. We remember one of the other points. Yeah, Jesus is identified as the Word. We said, why is that? Because He is the fullest and clearest revelation of God to the world. He is the Word. We'll look at that again here in 1.14. That He's identified as the Word. He's eternally existing. Two more.
The Word became flesh. That's John's Christmas story. It really is amazing. I think we can sometimes skim over it, but you do understand this is the, the pinnacle, the crux of Christian theology. The Trinity in the essence of Jesus Christ. And the Word became flesh. So remember in what we said with the Word. That the Word, it is Jesus identified as the Word, looking back to Genesis 1. 1 is God who creates, God who reveals. Jesus identified the Word as the most clearest divine revelation of God to man. John 1.18, Jesus is made him known. Where he is exegeted. He has explained the Father to us. That when God communicates who he is, he does it through Jesus Christ. What Christ says, what Jesus Christ does, who he is. He is the Word. Hebrews 1 Verse 1 and 2, remember it talks about how in times past God created, God communicated to us in various ways. He spoke in different ways. He spoke word through prophecies, through visions, through dreams. He has communicated to us. But now in these days, He has spoken most clearly to us through His Son. He has made Himself known to us through the word. John Piper, repeat a uh, <clears throat> quote from last week, says he is the climactic and decisive revelation of God to the world. The powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. So word became flesh, this word. It is Jesus who we're talking about when we say word. It is the revelation of God. It is God being revealed to man. The clearest way possible. I won't develop all these, but just when it speaks of word in the Bible, God does three things through the word. He reveals, he rescues, and he reigns. He reveals himself by the word, he rescues us by his word, and he reigns by the word of his power. Jesus Christ fulfills all of those ultimately as the highest revelation, the rescuer, and the one who reigns eternally from the day. In the kings of Lord Lords. So Jesus is the Word. The Word became. The Word became flesh. Right, became, it seems very simple. But if you get this word wrong, you're a heretic. <laughs> right? So don't get it wrong. When it says he became, the word became flesh, does that mean, you can answer me, that he ceased to be the word? and changed into something different. No. He's not changing. He's not ceasing to be. The Word remains God. Remember, the Word has already been established in John 1. He is eternally existent. That doesn't end. He became flesh. There's a school of thought that early on still actually is fairly strong. And it has the idea that became has more the idea of entering into so it's so it's more like Jesus entered into the realm of flesh, or kind of the sphere of flesh. And so we have the idea, carrying the idea that Jesus 
entered flesh. It's not that he so much became man as he was kind of in the midst. He lived in the realm of it. It's kind of the look that he had. And that would be heresy as well. When it talks about Jesus became flesh, it's an identification. He became, he took on, he became man. He did not cease to be God. He became man. The incarnation. So now we'll look at flesh. The word became flesh. And again, maybe it sounds like I'm belaboring it, but you do realize this is the crux of Christian theology. He became flesh. The flesh, we're not just simply talking about kind of that skin covering on the outside. So, you know, he was God just sort of wearing a coat of flesh that sort of fit him. We're also not talking about flesh as sometimes we think about in the New Testament as equivalent to sin nature. It's not that there was like some good and some evil. It's not becoming flesh and, and the, the part of you that goes after the lesson. When it talks about flesh, it's he became all that is human, all that is distinct from being divine. He became human. So with that is the body, with that is the, the, the flesh, as we think on the outside, but also the volition and the emotion and all that it is to be human, Jesus became. That we know yet without sin. John doesn't go into the to the virgin birth, but we know without sin, through the virgin birth, cutting off the seed from Adam and its fallenness, we enter as the second Adam. Fully human, all that it is to be human, yet continually to eternally exist as God. I know we can't totally wrap our minds around it. But you need to sit and ponder and think about it for a moment. Because even more than straw and mangers and donkeys and all of that that goes along with Christmas is Jesus fully God becoming fully man. Two whole complete natures inseparably, inseparably joined. Not confused or mixed together, but inseparably joined. So that then the unthinkable is real. In that Jesus, as he would lie there, and as he would reach for his mother, is completely helpless and dependent on his mother, Mary, to get him out of that manger. He has no power to do it on his own as that little baby lays there helpless. And yet that same hand holds all creation together every second. If he didn't, Scripture tells us, every atom and molecule would blow apart. But God the Son, Jesus, holds all of creation, sustains all of creation together by the power of his hand. Both of those are wholly and completely true of Jesus in the manger, holding all of creation together by the power of his hand. 
and yet reaching for that mother's face because he's unable to move himself out of danger. Fully God, fully man. The same hand that we see in John that through him all things were created. Unable to move his fingers to pick up a toy or maneuver things in those first few days. Holy God, holy man. This is the Christmas story. Word became flesh. I think John is still overwhelmed by it. We looked at this slightly last week, but when you go to his letter in 1 John, I can read it for you. You don't have to turn it down what you want to. As he opens his epistles in John, he begins 1 John this way. That which was from the beginning, very similar to how he opens the Gospel of John, speaking of Jesus here, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you, eternal life, which was from the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Here it is, the Word in the form of flesh. We've seen it, we've touched it, we've heard it. Uh, he rested his head on Jesus' shoulder. The Word become flesh. The next phrase, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You realize how amazing that is. That Jesus Christ, in Jesus, God dwells in our midst. I know I say this first all the time. I say it last week, but I think you should overwhelm us all the time. That promise and revelation that Jesus Christ walks about in the midst of the candlestick. Jesus Christ walks about in the midst of his church. That's us right now. Christ dwelling among us. God with us. Because of the incarnation. It should blow us away. I think when you trace the Old Testament, I'm going to ask you to just go with me on a few passages here. And you've seen the theology building to this point and where it goes about God dwelling with man. You realize for the reader just how incredible and amazing this is. The, the word there, word became flesh and dwelt among us. That dwell, maybe you made this, maybe it's in your Bible passing. It has the idea of pitching this tent. Or even carrying the root of tabernacle. So it'd be like God pitched his tent among us, or God tabernacled among us. The equivalent to that word in the Old Testament, John's using that specifically to build a whole lot of theology out of it. Turn to Exodus 25. I'm going to read a few verses here. So, so stay with me if you can as we, as we go through and build this theology of God dwelling among us. <clears throat> I'll begin reading verse 1, Exodus 25. 
The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive a contribution from me. And this is a contribution. So he's receiving and he's collecting all these things. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet and orange, fine, twine, linens, goat's hairs, and ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for settings for the ephod and for the breastplate. So he's all of these beautiful, expensive items he's collecting here. And none of them make me a sanctuary. That I am well in their midst. So you see, God has rescued his people. He's taken them out into Egypt. He has set them free. He has delivered them by the power of his word. He has brought them across the sea and he's moving them into the wilderness. He's giving them the law. He's giving them, setting the things before them. And now, what is it to be the people of God but that God dwells in your midst? The presence of God with you. That is what it is to be the people of God. God with us. But we start to see right now, how is that going to happen? And so he tells them, build in the center this, this sanctuary. And you'll see it grow through this. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting, which is kind of like a temporary type of tabernacle. Build this so that God can dwell in your midst. Flip over to Exodus 29, just a few chapters further here. I'm going to start reading in verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year. Two lambs a year. It's old. Two, year, two lambs a year old. Day by day, sorry. Day by day regularly. So offer two lambs uh, that are a year old every day. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the first lamb... Tenth of say, fine flour, mingled with a fourth hin of beaten oil, and the fourth hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering, and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you, to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them, that I might pitch my tent, that I might tabernacle, that I might be in their midst. I am the Lord, their God. <clears throat> As you go through, you start to see all of these mounting laws and regulations and all that it takes in order for God's presence to dwell with man. Because of sin. Because of their unfaithfulness. So you have the tent, you have the tabernacle, you have everything that was necessary for it. Now the priesthood, and everything that is necessary for that. And now the sacrifices, and the ongoing sacrifices. And then you'll read further, and you have the, the, the holy place, where only certain people are allowed in there. And then even less, once a year, into the holy of holies, where certain offerings are made. And you see the presence of God, with how important it is, yet how removed it is. And how you get to it because of the sin of man through these sacrifices, through these offerings, 
and yet God graciously dwells with man's sin. And we won't turn, keep turning all the passages, but you know how the story goes. Eventually you come to King David, the kingship starts, and then you have Solomon, and he builds this beautiful, this immaculate temple. People of God are unfaithful, and they are taken captive, taken away. So again, here you have the temple where, where God dwells, the glory of God, and the people come and they worship, and now they're taken away from it. God not, they can't come to the temple, they can't come to the dwelling place of God and worship. Taken captive, and the temple is destroyed. It's demolished. And the minor prophets and the major prophets, so much of this lamenting is how will the people return to God? How, where is God's presence with his people? How are God's people going to dwell with God? And Ezra and Nehemiah becomes this story again as they come back and they start rebuilding the walls, they rebuild the temple. And it doesn't return to its former glory anyways, but they at least get some of this temple rebuilt. And then again they're taken away from it. And it goes on and on this way. Prophets are left lamenting. They're left with words of judgment for the unfaithfulness of the people. But yet there are words of hope and there are words of promise. Listen to Zechariah 2. Shout and be glad of thy daughter of Zion, for I am coming. And I will live among you in the midst of their captivity, in the midst of being taken away from the temple worship. But still the promise, I am coming and I will live among you. Joel chapter 3. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. In Ezekiel 37, we come to new covenant promises. It says, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy. when my sanctuary is among them forever. So they're still holding out hope. God dwelling with his people. But if it's not going to happen to the temple, it's not going to happen to this tabernacle, and then all the laws fall, and the priesthood, how are we going to dwell with God? Because that's all that's important to be distinct as the people of God. You come to the 400 years of silence, and history will tell us in that time, once again, Pompeii comes in, desecrates the Holy of Holies. They loot the treasury, the storehouse of the temple. Now enter Jesus Christ. In one sentence, the Christmas story. God became flesh, pitched his tent in the middle of us. He has tabernacle among us. He is dwelling among us. He took on human form. He took on flesh in order to be the full revelation of God to us in order to tabernacle in the midst of us. God with us. John goes on to develop it. You, I think just the next chapter, John chapter 2, where he's in the, in the temple. Jesus tells them, you know, you tear down this temple and in three days it will be built back up. And they ask him, what were you talking about? We already rebuilt the temple. What's took forever? Of course, Jesus is referring to himself. Now calling himself, referring himself to the temple. He's telling them, what, foreshadowing the cross. 
We come just a couple chapters later in John chapter 4, and Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the woman from Samaria. Remember the argument rises up is how and where you worship God. Is it going to be here on this mountain as the Samaritans want to do? Is it going to be back here in Jerusalem? How, where do we worship our God? The answer is simple. We worship God not where, but in the spirit and in truth. He has pitched his tent in the midst of us. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Okay, turn it all over. Goes, it develops further. Come, dwell among men. I'm going to just start reading verse 1. We'll read a few verses here together. Listen, follow the old, it talks about the old covenant, what was necessary, what is new for us in Jesus. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in the earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the, the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn and holy banana, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without person taking. Would not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and then for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way to the holy places is not yet open as long as that first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, he's not just the priest. He's not just the sacrifice. He is the perfect tent. Not made with hands. Remember, the word is uncreated. He's apart from creation. In Jesus is the revelation, is the presence of God with man. God with us, Emmanuel. He is the fulfillment. This is what it's all been building to. To be God's people is to dwell with God. How do you dwell with God with all of this stands in the way? Jesus Christ, the perfect way, the perfect person, the perfect presence of God with us by means of his own sacrifice, of his own blood, offered by his own priestly work, mediated by him as our priest forever. One more. Go to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, and mourned for her husband. And I 
dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor any nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without pain. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. ultimate. The dwelling place of God is with man, where he will wipe away every tear from your eye, where you will no longer be enticed with those passions of the flesh that pull you to pursue something besides God. What you will want is him and him alone. No more pain, no more crying, no more distraction. Dwelling place of God will be with man. We will be, he will be our God. We will be his people eternally together. That's already been secured. We still await the final consummation, but it's already been secured because Jesus, eternally existing with God, came man in the incarnation in order that he might dwell, or that God might dwell with us in and through the accomplishments of Jesus Christ as our prophet, as our priest, as the perfect man, as our king. The word became flesh that dwelt among us. Finally, we beheld his glory. Go back to John. I don't know where we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As Tom Amy Cooper, I kept thinking of her kids as I was studying this. Just grace and truth. Every time I kept saying grace and truth, I kept thinking of her children. Grace and grace and truth, grace and truth. You put like a silent T in front of me. <laughs> First, just two kind of quick little points that involve the language and interpretation, just to make sure we get it right. If you start reading the Incarnation, these verses are so vital with the Kenosis, the Incarnation, God becoming man, and how that's understood, and how detailed and careful you have to be. I was thinking that when we're singing Christmas songs, almost every Christmas song, like you have to get the benefit of the doubt on one of the lines somewhere. Because <laughs> it kind of encroaches in on the last song we're going to sing, Heart Fairly Interesting, beautiful song again. But the last, there's a line there that says um, something about lay aside of glory, or something like that. You got to understand, like, he didn't cease to be God. So you just give him the benefit of the doubt. He left the glory of heaven. Well, I mean, there's ways to understand it. We, we talk about being veiled in flesh. That you have to be really careful as you describe the incarnation. We can give each other the benefit of the doubt that we're being careful. If you're writing a theology paper, you need to don't count on the benefit of the doubt. Be real careful. 
But they use these verses in a lot of ways. So just a couple little things if you're interested in. It, it talks there about that he has the glory as of. Uh, okay. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. If you engage with Jehovah's Witness or something, they're going to say that his glory is as, it's like, it's like or similar to the glory of the Son. And the sense would be like you saying, okay, I'm fast, I'm like, as fast as you. Obviously, you're not. You're just kind of exaggerating the point of comparison. That's not, this isn't comparison here, it's explanatory. So you could read it this way. <clears throat> and we have seen his glory, glory that is in keeping with the only son from the Father. Does that kind of clarify it? It's not just like similar or a comparison. It's explanatory. So, I'm trying to think now, keep my illustration going, it would be like saying that she is as fast as she is. Or that she does runs as in keeping with how a cheetah would run. Fully man, fully cheetah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking wild cracks. <laughs> you guys want to say that? <laughs> Alright. Okay, back to uh, so it's it's explanatory. Alright, it's not just a comparison, it's not an exaggeration. So it's just like, well, he's kind of like God. No. He is as in keeping with what belongs to God, what belongs to the Son of God belongs to the Lord. Alright, does that make sense? Then the other word is, I don't know how your interpretation in, in your Bible is, but it's the only Son from the Father. Your Bible might say the only begotten Son from the Father. I think in the end of this is the one and only, which is really probably the best interpretation. Um, it's not talking about, like, it, it's speaking of uniqueness. But the total and full uniqueness of him. So it's not only begotten, begotten can start to become a little confusing. Is it like he is uh, born of God? Some of you born of God, they, they can be confusing how people take that. Only, it's more than that. It's kind of that one and only. The, the uniqueness, Jesus is unlike any other son. Unlike us, he's the one and only because he shares the exact same essence as God the Father. Right? So, just a, a couple of little language things there. But again, this is going to send us back to the Old Testament. And I'm going getting towards the end here. So, I'll just kind of recap this in the last few minutes here. But when it talks about we beheld his glory, it sends us back to Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. John does this. Does anyone remember what happens in Exodus 32? Setting us up for Exodus 33 and 34. It's kind of two parallel things going on. Moses is going up on the mountain to meet with God. And as he goes to meet with God, God writes a tablet. He gets the two tablets, the two stones, the very writing figure of God. Parallel at the same time to what's happening with the Israelites. Yeah, they get this great idea they can Aaron, let's like build a cap and start worship again while Moses is up to with God and getting more than that. So, you know, obviously not a great situation. Moses comes back, and here you have the people worshiping the golden calf. 
Moses is angry and throws the tablet down. Those are broken. And then God is angry. And he gives this word, this punishment that he lays out in the Exodus. That, you know, he'll, he'll be true to his word and he'll let them into the land of Canaan. He'll give them the milk, honey, they'll defeat the enemies that they need to get in there, have the land, be wealthy. But he just kind of throws them on the caveat. An angel's going to leave you. I'm not going with you. Because I'll consume you if I can with you. So God says, my presence with you is too dangerous for you. I'll consume all of them. So they get everything but the presence of God. Which, I don't think it was a stretch. I just immediately thought I was reading through this. It's kind of like Christmas in our culture, most things. Everything but the presence of God. Right? <laughs> all the trappings, all everything about it, except God dwelling in that. And I think, too, and for me personally, as a pastor, and then you feel like a vision, whatever it is, but you kind of think, okay, what if I could, like, you can have this building, this many people, and all of this going on, but God won't be with you. I think there's a lot of us who stop and think about it. Well, I should enjoy. We hear Moses' response in chapter 33. So Moses now in chapter 33, he goes outside the camp, and he pitches his tent. And as he pitches his tent, God comes, cloud descends upon it. So again, already that imagery from John chapter 1, pitching the tent there. Moses goes in. And he pleads with God, and he says, you cannot remove your presence from us. If you do, we are no longer a people. We are no longer going to be a distinct people if you do not go with us. That kind of that idea, I would rather have God with me and be consumed because of fury than not have God with me. He gets it. The presence of God is what makes them people. <clears throat> and so the Lord, as the writer would say, and God kind of these human qualities and emotions to write the story. God relented and answered Moses' response. And then Moses kind of ups the ante and says, God, I can't go out there unless I know you're with me. Show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And it's the same word that he asked to see there is the equivalent to the Greek word used there. It's a, a, a visible manifestation of God. Not just show me something powerful, but I want to see you. Show me your glory, he asked. Then you remember God's response is, okay, you can't like look up on my face, or you'll be dead. But I'll carve out a cleft of rock, I'll set you in there, and then I'll pass by. And what he explains is something like, if you were to look up in the sky, and you don't see an airplane, but you kind of see that tail of the light, you know, smoke or exhaust that's let out. No, there's a long line of white cloud in the sky. So by the time you get out, the plane's long gone. You can kind of see that big tail. That's sort of the idea there. I'll pass by and then you can get a glimpse of my glory that sort of is fading in the background as I pass by. 
that, that sort of imagery before he offers to Moses. And then he says something right after that. He says, and I will declare my goodness. The Lord will be merciful, to whom he will be merciful, he will be gracious, to whom he will be gracious. His goodness is his divine, sovereign graciousness how he decides to dispense it in his wisdom. So then we come through, we come to Exodus 34, and now he commands Moses to take those tablets and once again to carve, this time he's not going to write it on them, to carve into the tablets the words of God, the revelation of God. He does it. They can have the words of God. So again, we've seen those are the of John 1. And then Moses is placed in that cleft. The Lord passes before him. And the proclamation is, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. There's two words that are just used there, two Hebrew words. Hesed and Mah. Hesed is that covenant love. They're both related to covenant. The covenant love of just pure graciousness and love. And the other one is the idea of, of covenant faithfulness, or fidelity. That he will be truthful, he will be faithful to his word. When John catches just the slightest glimpse after God's past, that's what it is. Oh, Lord, full covenant love, covenant faithfulness. When we come to John chapter 1, we have seen his glory, glory of his only Son from the Father, full of grace, ascended covenant love, the truth of my covenant faithfulness. Grace and truth. What Moses got just a glimpse of there, now that is what Jesus Christ, dwelling in our midst, makes known to us every moment. Grace and truth. God Almighty. You see, the people are really, I mean, they're hearing these things. It's not just words being used. They're seeing years and years of promise and wanting to dwell with God now being realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Skip verse 15 there. It's just kind of time. Verse 16 there was a promise for this. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God revealed himself in the law of Moses. And he, it's not that there is no grace in the law of Moses. It's not that the law came to Moses. Now it's replaced with Christ, which, yes, it's really better. It's not like one was bad and the other was good. God has revealed himself in the law. It is a grace. But now the pinnacle, full revelation, what we've really been waiting for is realizing. And that is grace and truth seen in Christ. And that's the idea of grace was being close to the law, but now we need grace, grace greater is given to Jesus. And grace upon grace will be fresh and new like the waves coming in the sand, never wearing out, one after another. He has given us grace 
of grace. The law was given to Moses, grace and truth came through Christ. And you can see that John isn't talking bad about the law. I'll just give you a couple of references. I don't want to go through them right now the time. But John 3.14, John 5.46, and John 6.32 are all places where John either quotes Jesus or he's talking about Moses and how Moses testified to Jesus and how if you understood what Moses said, then you would understand Jesus. And so he's not speaking badly about the law. He's just saying it wasn't the realization of the full revelation of God to man. That is Jesus Christ. And then it finishes with verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He is Christ has made known the Father to us. I'm going to finish just by reading a portion of the Athanasius Creed. I know I finished the Creed last time. Um, the early battlegrounds for the church were on the essence of Christ, the Trinity. And so they spent years studying, reading, working, getting it right. And then the language becomes so beautiful and doxological as you read it. I'll close with this and then we'll sing. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe faithfully in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the essence of the Father begotten before the world, and man the essence of his mother born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul of human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, inferior to the Father is touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one not by conversion of the Godhead into the flesh, but by assumption of the manhood by God. So important, so good. One altogether, not by confusion of essence, not blending together, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one in Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, at whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their own works. They, they that have done good shall go into life everlasting. They have done evil into everlasting fire. Let's believe this truly and firmly. You cannot be saved. There is a talk there at the end. Don't get confused with the language of the good and bad words at the end. Judging based on Two persons, God and man, in the person of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the truth of the incarnation. Thank you that the word became flesh. Thank you that it dwells in the midst. We thank you that in Christ we can behold the glory of the Father. Lord, we praise you for this. Pray now that you strengthen and encourage us with these truths.